Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. This week, we're very happy to welcome back one of the earliest guests on our podcast, Quinton Lake. Quinton walked the entire coast of Britain, just the big island, not the rest of it. Um, This started, the journey started on April 17, 2015, and finished on September 15 of this year. Five and a half years. Quentin, thanks for joining us again. It's I, great I'm, to be back. I'm just in awe of what you did. And and after when I discovered your work a few years ago and we started the podcast and, and I've been following you and we interviewed you and it's just I've I've been living vicariously a bit through the photos that you've been posting on Twitter and Instagram, and and seeing the wonderful landscapes and 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 feeling empathy when you're getting frostbite or your socks are too wet or it's too windy and you had some really bad weather. So you've been home now for what two months, two and a half yeah, two months, two and a half months, yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is a situation where, well, I guess you could go out, right? You're alone. It, you know, you're not meeting six people outside, so you're allowed to. But how has the change been? How have you transitioned from that movement? And we have to say it wasn't every day. You did it in, in little bits of a few weeks at a time. But how have you transitioned from that movement to this sort of sedentary lifestyle? Well, it's It's been difficult. I mean, it's the lack of movement, but also the lack of, of mission that I had this thing for five years where – even if I wasn't walking, I was planning the next section. So th- I I kind of missed that. But I have um, I, I do integrate walking into my life. So t- tomorrow, every Wednesday, I go on a kind of long adventure walk from dawn to dusk. Um, I'm not sleeping in a tent. And then a couple of other times a week, I, I, I walk up my local hill to, to watch the sunset. And I take my stove up and just make, make a tea just because it's a nice thing to do to stay in with it. So I am making sure I'm out a lot because I know for my kind of mental health, I, I need to do that. But um, but the transitions, it's been really very strange because I had a lot of interviews, I think 80 or something. So I'm only just coming out at the end of that. So it's been a really surreal, strange phase of my life. And I'm, at the moment, I'm just doing a lot. Like today, I was selling prints. Every day, I'm selling prints. So it's a, this kind of business, talking to people. So I, I haven't really taken stock yet, but I suspect it's going to suddenly hit me that, I'm not I'm not doing it anymore. We'll link in the show notes to a couple of the videos. There's one that I guess you made for Canon um, that's a really good overview of what you're doing. And there was one on the BBC where they were waiting for you at St. Paul's Cathedral. Your family was waiting when you ended. Um, that's right, yeah. It's And you were shooting these videos as you were going on. Uh, you know, you didn't have a camera crew behind you. You did have a drone flying over you at times, and, and that was interesting. Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I took everything myself, I think, of the five-year journey I only, I think it was the iPhone 8 where I felt the video was good enough that it was kind of worth putting some energy into making the video good. And so that was, I think that was a couple of years ago. So I think it was from from North Scotland. I, I, I took a lot of videos with that and time lapses. And then about the same time, I took a Mavic Air as well. Um, so it was all footage. I, I mean, I, it was because as I got fitter, I could take more weight at the beginning of the journey. I, I was trying to cut down weight as much as possible. And as, as I went on, I went more for more robust gear. And actually, a lot of my equipment got bigger. So the tripod got bigger and I carried a drone and more batteries. So I ended up carrying more weight. But I, but I, I really wanted to get that video material. But it actually helped in getting the media interested because I could just give them a, 
Google Drive with all the material on it and they didn't have to do anything really. Yeah, and that wow. makes it easier for some producer at a TV station to, did, to whip up a thing. Two, two minutes, did. 30, he's, he's got all the video. They have an intro and an outro. Yeah, it's definitely why can. I mean, they were quite blunt about it. You know, they could afford to get send a crew out for two days, but not for a week. And yeah, and and to, to get all that material it, that I provided them, it would have taken a lot longer. So, have you edited that stuff yourself, or do you just have a lot of raw video that still needs to be worked on? Just a lot of raw video. Yeah, I, I mean, as as I went, if I had data, I would I would post it on on Twitter and Facebook as a kind of a a bit of background summary. But I, I've just put it unedited on a Google Drive and. And other people have edited it when it's been on TV, yeah. You said you don't have a sense of mission, but you have thousands of photos <laughs> to edit. Um, how many uh, – do, do you have an idea of how many keepers you have and how long it's going to take to go through all of them? And will you ever go through all of them? <laughs> it is my intention. I mean, it has – so the journey was – I need to look at my notes. I can't remember now. And the journey was 454 days of walking, and, and I've got 186 days of backlog. So, um, but it has been, I'm actually really enjoying it at the moment. I'm editing Noidart, which is my favorite bit of the journey. Um, so I, I'm suspecting those 186 days will take me about a year. So I'm probably going to try and give myself a really positive deadline at some point of, of next winter. But my intention is, is to work through it or update the blog because I'm, you know, I'm making the prints and ultimately it will be in a book. So, but of the, of the keepers, um, how many will be, I mean, I think I've got about 1,600 keepers at the moment, so it'll probably be about double that. That's extraordinary. It's almost too many. How can you choose after a while? I know that for you, you're going through them and you've got a linear progression as you're looking at each batch of photos. You know where you were, you can you can follow your path, but after a while, isn't it hard to say, uh, you're comparing these photos to the previous ones and this one's good, but is this one better? Or are you just looking at each segment and saying, what's the best in that segment? Well, I'm trying to treat it like, I mean, the, the trick to doing the endurance walk was to only ever think about the next horizon and the next few. If you started to think about the next week or month or the fact that, you know, I split a tendon and had all kinds of things wrong with me and start, if you dwell on the negatives, you're never going to progress. You have to just think about getting to the next, next, I mean, every evening I felt too tired and thought I can continue. But after a while, I realized that's how it would always be. And I, I kind of think with the editing, it's the same. So you know, I'm looking at the thumbnails of the day ahead of me and trying to enjoy that, the joy of editing it. And I'm not really thinking about the bigger picture. And then afterwards, I'm making these comparisons. But when I am making the comparisons, I'm finding it really very enjoyable creatively. So like the sort of thematic sub albums that are emerging, kind of like abstract seascapes or industrial geometrical details, things like that, which are they're forming into little kind of albums. And when and when they're together, they're like little they become little gem like groupings. And then it's actually easier to choose the best one or to make a set within those. So I mean I'm thoroughly enjoying that process. Yeah. Are you finding that the photos that you expected would be keepers are the ones that you are choosing? Or has there been a significant amount of just discovery of running across something and say, wow, I thought this was just going to be a sort of an average shot and it turns out to be one of my favorites from the days. I think it's often like that, especially how malleable raw files are that I can see the preview and think that's not so great. Mm -hmm. And then when you when you kind of start manipulating a bit and, and draw out some of the shadows and the details, you can have a picture that you weren't expecting can be amazing. I mean, often having said that, when you get the tingle up your spine 
when you're in the on location. Like I recently edited this rainbow storm in Neudart where it looks like there's about four seasons at once in the same frame, a wide angle shot. I mean, that was that was a euphoric moment to be standing there as as the weather changed so quickly. It was suddenly a storm, then it was sun, then it was wind, and it was it was thrilling to be there. And uh, and I, I think some of that has translated into the picture. But often it's not like that. Sometimes it can feel thrilling and it's not there in the picture. So I think it works both ways. Mm. It's interesting because lately on Twitter and, and Instagram, you've been sharing a number of photos with stormy skies. <laughs> yes. And I, I like I like photos with stormy skies. I like that that randomness of the clouds in nature that, that has those gradations and all. Of course, they're better in black and white. But yes, um, yeah. there, there's something energetic about this. And... And knowing what you've been through in the in the rough weather, um, that really says a lot. That those photos with the the ominous clouds kind of stand out. I can imagine you've got five miles more to go before the evening, and you see those clouds, and you must feel somewhat anxious about getting to your endpoint. Very much, especially the ones you just talked about in Neudart, because it was so remote. It was kind of four or five days to to walk in to there, and there was no one around at all, and I was you know, really had to be very self-contained for a, quite a long period of time. It was in the winter. It was getting dark there about four o'clock. And then you see mm. the storm cloud. And then because the terrain is tricky, there was nowhere to put a tent. So I would have to progress for sometimes three or four hours in the dark in that quite mountainous terrain. So it did feel very ominous. But the upside is I was seeing otters and porpoise. And I mean, it's just... So porpoise? I'm um, sorry. Um, well, I can't remember what they're called now. Porpoises? They're like porpoises? They're porpoises, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I thought maybe this was another British pronunciation yeah, no, I had no, never no, heard. No, no. Like, <laughs> no, just me being stupid. <laughs> every once in a while, I discover these words, and, and the, 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 the typical one for me is, is the one that's pronounced chumley, that, but it's spelled with like 18 letters. Oh, yes. <laughs> C-H-O-L-M-O-N-D-L-E-Y, chumley. Um, and, and heck, I live right next door to Worcestershire, which is pronounced Worcestershire, but yeah, um, I'm always curious when people, um, come up with English words because I've only been in this country, not even eight years. So there's a lot to discover. Um, speaking of discovery, what I find interesting is most of your photos are landscapes, but there are a fair number of photos of the people that you met along the way. How did people react when you were telling them, yeah, I'm walking 10,000 kilometers, (laughs) Uh, most of the time I didn't didn't really say. I mean, the reason there aren't many pictures of people is I didn't meet many people. And, and Yeah, but and there I, are a fair number. I'm looking on your galleries here and there's yeah. people here and there. Oh no, no, I've made a made a conscious effort to photograph people, but okay. my, my 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 sort of policy there's 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 Neil McDiarmid, who's like an incredible photographer of people. He's done a lot of projects on the coast. Um so I, I felt uh, my strength was sort of the industrial landscape thing. So it's partly about trying to keep the theme of my work specific. But I, my, my own strategy was that if I felt a real connection with someone after talking to them, I would then ask to take their picture. I, I'm not the kind of people for photographer that I just kind of go out and especially not in this environment. I have done that in big cities, but when it's so remote, you know, you're not, you know, you can't kind of come across someone without them realizing it. So so I, I generally we'd we'd have a chat and if there was a connection I'd I'd take a picture and and I think the best portrait I took is is where that connection comes comes across. And how many? I mean, you spent some of the nights you spent in bed and breakfast. And you didn't tell people what your project was. You just said, "I'm just doing a walk." Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be, yeah. Because you didn't want to get into long conversations about it. 
no, because I didn't want to jinx it that I would fail. Okay. I mean, a, proje a project like this, I think you've got to, I mean, lots of things did go wrong. I mean, I, I, I had shin splints, I, I had a torn tendon. Uh, I got I got stuck below cliffs with a rising tide over my boots in Holderness, which is the closest, you know, genuinely, genuinely life-threatening moment where I was really lucky to, to scramble up the cliffs and get out. Um, and it, that was that was really kind of quite near the end. And and the, the broom way was just that was about three days before the end, which is supposedly Britain's most perilous path. This very long tidal route out to sea, which needed a massive amount of really technical planning, talking to meteorologists to make sure that, that, is, that it is that was the safe. one where you can only walk at certain hours of the day because well, the tide rises. That's right. Well, it's it's um it's nine kilometers. It's about a kilometer away from shore. It's extremely fast rising tide. On once, if you get lost one direction, it's sinking mud, and on the other direction, it's unexploded ordnance. So if you get <laughs> even like fifty meters wrong, you're going to get stuck. And then the, wow. the and then the wind and the meteorological pressure affects the tide, and it can make it even one or two meters extra high. Wow! And if you if you judge it even slightly wrong, you're completely screwed. So and you have to walk. It's a really weird experience. You have to walk with the tide dropping. So you have to wade through it just enough so that you can see the ground. It's kind of terrifying, but it is terrifying. I remember seeing the photos that you posted that, that looked like uh, there was one period when you showed a photo in front of you and behind you, and, and mm. you couldn't see the, the beach or anything. It's just water. It's but, just water, yeah. But I didn't have the, the understanding of how precarious it really was. Yeah, it's a strange, I mean, supposedly it's a hundred, over 100 people have perished on it, and it, it's, it's, but it's really weird. And But it's a Faunus Island that this leads to is a, is a Island used by the Ministry of Defence for, they've used it for different experimental and testing. So there's a whole lot of mystique. And then when I arrived on the island, and you can only legally you can only arrive without getting inter intercepted by the broomway and back by the broomway, which logistically with the tides and the daylight is basically means it's almost impossible. And I arrived and all the adrenaline, and I, oh, I was really wet, and I dumped my stuff on the beach, put my stove on, made a cup of tea, and was just so relieved that I'd got there. And then this this jeep and I was intercepted immediately <laughs> with these you know the British way of going hello sir can I help you, you know, which means you know, that's the British way of telling saying you know get but 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 they just wanted to know exactly what I was doing how I was getting back and then then but I you know I felt I was being watched the whole time around when I was there so it's a really strange place it sounds like the X Files it is really like the X Files no it's really yeah wow yeah and the, and the, there's there's a pub and there's a church in the middle of the of the island which is completely derelict. And most of the buildings are derelict. It's it's very strange place. And then these 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 sort of buzzing buildings in the middle of it with with guarded buildings. <laughs> there, there's a place off the coast of Brittany that goes to it's a road that goes to one of the islands. I think it's the Ile de Ray, and the tide covers the road twice a yeah. day. Yeah. And so if you go there, it's not quite as long, but if you go there, you have yeah. to make sure that you can get there safely. Yeah. And a few years ago, they did the Tour de France. They started in that area and yeah. the riders were a little bit late and you see them going along the road with the water coming up to their feet and they really had to hurry. That sort of thing is dangerous. It is dangerous. Well, and we've got, we've got Linda's Farm, Holy Island uh, here as well, which uh, I, I walked over there under, under moonlight at, at night. There's a pilgrim's path. It's probably similar. It's like, I think it's three kilometers 
on the pilgrims route and there's a there's a causeway you can drive across and people there told me yeah the, the tourists visiting often get stuck because they go to see if that's where the vikings landed and yeah. and built that whole amazing history there and there's the there's the there's the castle and people go and visit and then they get stuck and they they, they try and push the tide getting back and get stuck <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's lots of pictures on the internet of coaches and cars that's stuck scary on. yeah it wow. is it is scary yeah that brings up the question of you know how much of your trip was that sort of technical planning scouting ahead on maps and and all of that versus just i'm going to go walk i mean obviously you had a destination but i think maybe i have it in my mind it was just i know where i'm going to go and i'm going to grab my camera and my gear and i'm just going to head out and see what i find with the difficult bits were each planned like a like an expedition and masses of planning so Ardnamurkin Peninsula, Neudart, the Broomway, those, those, I mean, the, the, the Broomway was, was really hours and hours of research talking to different people over a number of months to, to figure out how to do it. And, um, and the other wilderness areas were, were planned really carefully, but the other bits I was improvising as I went. I mean, if like the South coast, there weren't any big logistical problems. It was just about getting food and water, for example. I'm looking at one photo, which I think you tweeted this a few weeks ago, and I like minimalist photography, and this is mm. one of the nicest ones. White Horizon, Irish Sea, Dumfries in Galloway, Scotland. So you've got the gray uh, clouds, you've got the light, the sunlight, just on the horizon of the sea, and then the the sea itself is very dark. You have yes. a number of photos like that, kind of like um, what's his name, Hiroshi Sujimoto, yes, that that did these photos of sky and sea. And what I find so interesting is that in Sujimoto's photos, they all look the same. Um, I bought one of his books, and after about twelve pages, you're looking at the same photo, just slightly different. But here, your photos, everyone is different. You've managed well, to you. find different light in the sea, slightly different colors. Um, that to me would be a wonderful series to make a book of. I, I completely agree. And, and for me, he was like a sort of towering touchstone, coastal touchstone. And at the beginning, I was keeping my coastal pictures to myself because I thought, well, you know, I don't want to do a bad version of his work. But but then I think because the weather was so inclement and and there was so much strange variety that and some of the, the pictures you're talking about, some of my favorite pictures, yes, I think it would you know, when, when all this gets distilled, those pictures will be a really large part of what I think is important about this project. I mean, there's another one called Banded Horizon, which is like there's about five layers of cloud bands looking from Devon to um, to, uh, to Wales, which is, has a similar really, to me, unique aesthetic I haven't seen before of these really interesting tones. Yes, this is the one with the, be honest, it looks like you photoshopped layers of clouds. I know that's not what it is, but it looks like you yes. photoshopped the different layers of clouds there. And there's what, four, three or four bands of clouds, and then you get a couple of bands in, in the water. Um, yeah. That's really it fascinating. Almost could, it almost could be like a, a bad clone job, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like using patch tool badly, but it's actually how it was. So in all of this, Britain has an extraordinary coastal landscape. Is there an area... That was the most interesting. I mean, the proverbial white cliffs of Dover or the, the rough Scottish terrain, um, the sandy beaches with the statues uh, off Liverpool. What was the area that, that you'll remember the most? Well, the part which I remember the most is, is the rough bounds of Scotland, which is the area of, of the Ardnamurkin Peninsula, um, Arisaig Peninsula, Moidart and Noidart is what denotes the rough bounds and that's that's the kind of western bit around Malague and it's 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 not only mountainous but within the mountains it's very sort of ridged landscape 
So it's pretty much impossible to build roads through. So as a result, it's very, very pristine. And all the people I met in were these really kind of charismatic, interesting people that were holding out in that environment. So it's just for the, the people on the landscape. And because it was such an adventure to plan it and figure it out, each of those parts was kind of carrying food for a week at a time. And like Noida has got one little village, you can only get to it by boat. So it really felt kind of epic and really amazing adventure. And if people want to get a taste of that environment, you could the the Cape Wrath Trail, which is a brilliant, um, quite well organized adventure trail. And there's a, there's a bothy called Sowley's Bothy where, where I met, met two guys really unexpectedly in the middle of winter in this. And that's on the edge of, of Nidart where you can, it's a bit, bit easier to get to than the rest of it. And so you were in this area in winter, which isn't really the best time to be in Scotland, is it? Well, theoretically not, but... but is there a good the, time to of, be in Scotland? <laughs> well, I, I mean, some of the pictures I'm pr- proudest of uh, with these storms and rainbows and everything going on at once, I mean, that only really happens quite like that with that degree of drama in the winter. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's... And then you don't, you don't have midges, but of course it's much colder and much windier and you've hardly got any light. But the why part of why... I, I was very disciplined in in going through the four seasons throughout the five years. And that was because I wanted to have this variety of of light and tone that you only get in the winter. Some section hikers, which I guess is what I what I am, would sort of only do three seasons and leave out the winter. But I, I found I was often getting the very best pictures in in the winter and there's there's a real sense of focus that you you get up before dawn you walk all day and then you start to relax at sunset so there's no like sleeping in and taking it easy but actually it's a in the winter you feel you've really grasped the day with both hands it's quite a nice feeling to have covered the the distance in the winter so i'm looking at the map and i'm looking at the different times of year um for instance argyle shire i'm probably not pronouncing that right um argyle shire south you're in august and then December, you're Inverness South, which isn't far away. But w- what happens up here is you were really following the very coast. So every time there's one of those little, I guess, mini fjords, you have to go all the way in and all the way out. And so right. you you were maybe – you could have gone 20 miles as the crow flies, but it took 100 miles. Was that it? That's it. And also all of that has – there's no footpaths for any of that. So the terrain is – it's it's kind of tussocky uh, heather and and bogs and and rocks and and you know I could be going with full energy all day from dawn to dusk and only cover sometimes sometimes only in Noida only nine kilometres which was really kind of soul destroying. I mean, when I'm on the flat, even carrying twenty kilograms, I could often I can cover forty five kilometres if I need to if I'm if I need to get somewhere. Um, if I'm doing a long day, I mean, my average was 25 kilometers. So it just to give an impression of how difficult the terrain was. So I'm looking at the map and you're just, you're on the east there, just north of Norwich, and you have the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown where you returned home for 17 weeks. And so it was from March until July, but then you did that last bit from July to September was, well, I guess it wasn't all straight because there's a lot of inlets there too, when you get down to Essex. I mean, Essex has got the second longest county coastline in England. So it's really surprising. So it's yeah. it's it's 576 kilometres. So it's got a huge amount of inlets, even though it's really close. But I mean, Norfolk and Suffolk were pretty quick. Yeah, Lincolnshire, mm. you did in nine days. And that looks in in straight line, that looks as long as Suffolk, Essex, London, almost entirely. That, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I, but I, I did it continuously because I was worried about a second lockdown. And in fact, uh, so that I, made you rush a little bit more. Well, I, I walked, I mean, I think the longest leg of the journey was in Scotland. I walked nine weeks at a time. Um, but, but generally I was walking kind of around a, around a month in the end at a time, but, but because of lockdown, I was just raring to go. I wanted to finish the project and I was really worried to be a, a second lockdown. In fact, it started to happen. I mean, when I when I finished the project, I was kind of going to have a party, but we were down to the rule of six, all these different rules we've had. I think it was the rule of six then. So <laughs> theoretically, yeah. it was small groups of six that, that that kind of welcomed me at the end. So it was, um, yeah. But if, I, if I'd got it wrong by a week, it would have been a problem because we were then into a proper lockdown again. Yeah. yeah. So all this is done. And you know, the next question is what's next? <laughs> I mean, you're going to spend a year editing, and I think that's really interesting um, that now you've got the time to digest all this and go back and, and give it unity, because part of what you're doing in editing is you're you're applying your look to your photos, right? That That's right. I mean, I think the first stage is, you know, I just want to do right to each day by spending time to, to, make, to make the edit. But often on the blog, I'll, I'll be posting things that might be a bit funny or things that are historically interesting. And in amongst that, there might be the occasional picture which is a good fine art picture projects changed for me a bit from when i began at the beginning i felt that the only things i wanted to post would be kind of fine art type considered pictures but then i was seeing so many things that were interesting historically or culturally or just things that were just plain funny that i wanted to sort of cast the net a bit wider and included a broader set of pictures and and because i i felt it was almost like a like an archive that i was creating I wanted to include those kind of pictures as well. And I still do for the 156 pitch days I've left left to edit. Uh, I'm noticing, I'm, I'm just looking at some of the earlier photos like Kent and um, places like that. And in some of them, you're showing, um, here's one, pictures of a museum in Margate. Um, in Dover, you've got, I don't know what looks like, maybe it's a ferry a car park or a lorry park or something like yeah. that. You you really kept yourself to the edge, right? So if there was something really interesting to see that was a mile inland, you didn't go there? If it was a mile inland and it was really interesting, then then yes, I did. But on the south coast, there's so many. I mean, there's so many incredible sites down there that I did keep really close to it. But in like in, in Scotland, I often went to the sort of some of the Neolithic sites or the, or the tombs or these really interesting ancient sites. So like in Kilmartin, there's all these cup and ring markings. And, and I found that really fascinating of this sort of mysterious culture. No one really knows what these cups and rings were for. And, and that, and the kind of the, the Gallic Kings there, that, that was the center, as I understand it, of the whole of, of the British Isles there. And then, so it was that midpoint between Ireland and Scotland and it was the, the people that controlled those islands controlled Britain. And then the um, and then and the north, it was like the hub between Scandinavia and Britain. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, so I did. I did later on. Yes. Were there any distilleries on the coast up in Scotland? <laughs> I don't think there are, are there? Um, th- there's, there's not many, but I I was really I think there's Glen Glen Morangi is on the coast, I think. But I think it was just one of these things because I I, I kind of liked my whiskey. But I just whenever I was near the distillery, it was it was the. I mean, so sometimes I was just filthy, and I just felt I wasn't really kind of in the right frame of mind to kind of go go and into a shop even. So and but and sometimes it was just the wrong time of day. Or I mean, every day I tended to have a 
you know, I had to schedule to get somewhere for the light or to buy water or, you know, I was on Google Maps figuring out when the one store that sold sold food would close and almost every day I seemed to be rushing for something or even something as banal as the hours that a public toilet would stay open either to get water or, or to use the facilities. Mm. So um, I, I didn't really have much time at all to do any sort of sightseeing pleasure things. <laughs> That's too sadly. bad. That's too bad. So I, I said, what's next? And I'm looking at all these Scottish islands that you haven't visited. Would would you want to do the perimeters of all the islands? I'd, I'd love to. I think Ireland and the islands, maybe call it the constellation or something like that. I'm not sure. But you know, if but it has to work for me from a business point of view. I have to sell enough prints and yeah. and, the, and the book has to be a success so I can commit the time to do it. But if it is, I would love to do that. Okay. Well, everyone <laughs> listening, please go to the website and then <laughs> buy some prints. Um, I'm very proud to have a print of yours. It's not from this um, series. It's a print. Uh, was it Greenland? The one that I bought. Greenland, I'll, I'll put yes. a link in the show notes. I love it because it's this really minimalist sort of seascape and this this mountain coming down into the sea and it's almost black and white and i thought it was a black and white photo but you said it's actually a color photo but it's just that the scene was so monochromatic um you do know that's ice in the foreground oh it is it's the the sea is frozen there that's the greenland ice cap i know it really looks like really looks like the sea okay greenland ice cap there you go slight slight ripples in in the air it's it's really strange light effect yeah Okay, well, I recommend that everyone buy a photo from Quentin because there's the, the the problem. I hate to say it, the problem is there are so many nice photos that how does one choose? I think the answer is you don't choose; you just buy many. Yes. That's what that, that's what the answer is. <laughs> I know that we spoke on the phone a while ago, and I was asking you what you were going to do next, and you were talking about maybe doing a river um, someplace. You were talking about a river in France or Germany where you can only go for three months now because of Brexit, so that makes it hard, but. I mean, how do you follow up on something like this? You're, you're still a young man. You've got a long way to go. Um, what What do you, I'm sure you've got a short list of ideas. Wow. Um, I mean, I think part of it is a, is a way of traveling rather than, than maybe, I don't think it needs to be a grand adventure to travel like this and still get the same creative benefits from it. So it could be a shorter journey and it could still have the same, benefits i mean there are some more modest journeys i'm keen to do so there's a uh, glendower's way across wales there's the um south downs way i mean they're they're, they're short but simple walks or it, it could be a river walk along following along europe uh, but then yeah there are in the back of my mind these sort of grand ideas like sort of the furthest points you, you can walk across the globe which which are which ironically is only twice i think it's twenty two thousand. i think it's cape town to i think it's siberia 22,000 kilometers but that's actually that's that's only double what the perimeter journey was so it's so only the, the, double <laughs> yeah, but it is surprise so the, so the perimeter is more than a quarter of the circumference of the globe yeah so that it's a tiny island it's, it's so enmeshed so you so you so kind of my mindset is that these pretty large walks are possible but um, would that that wouldn't be on land the whole time the only the longest on land would be from the tip of south america to up in canada or alaska wouldn't it you know, I, I haven't done that much research, but I think the longest continuous land journey is is the Africa one across. I think, I think it's, it's if you follow roads. I think okay, we'll, we'll have to look into it. We can, yeah. You know. I, I actually saw a map of this, like it popped up on social media somewhere, and yeah, you could walk from Siberia to I think South Africa or something. It's crazy. I, th- I think maybe it's the distortion of the globe with the Mercator <clears> projection that. 
South America and North America looks like it would be longer, but I think maybe it is longer because Africa, Africa mm-hmm. is huge, isn't it? Always looks small in there. You could just come and and walk around the United States. That'd be a short little pop. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I'd, I've I've got I've got to taste the the American trail culture. You know, I want to have a trail name. I want to meet trail angels, trail buddies, all that stuff. It seems so much more social and, in a way, more fun in the states. I mean, the yeah. uh, Pacific Coast Trail. I really love to do that. So, I mean, I, I, it's not sort of original in 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 the way that this other journey was but i'd i'd love i'd love to to experience that yeah okay quinton thanks for joining us again we look forward to hearing what's next let us know when the book comes out so we can mention it um thanks, Kirk. and so links in the show notes to this crazy story <laughs> and hundreds of photos and buy a photo it's worth it <laughs> i hope we can talk to you again soon thanks Kirk. that's brilliant okay time for our snapshots jeff what have you got well, I'm going to talk about something new to my house, which is the HomePod Mini. But that has nothing to do with photography. It does, because I get to listen to music while I'm working on photography. How about that? There you go. That's a good <laughs> um, I have had a regular HomePod in our living room for a while. It replaced an old Sonos speaker, which was a great speaker, but I just... I didn't really like the Sonos software and didn't really want to spend a whole lot of money to get more Sonos things. And since I'm an Apple household anyway, I figured I would go with Apple's offering. And it's been great. And so when Apple introduced the HomePod Mini, I thought that that would be a nice, inexpensive way to expand the the capabilities both with Siri and both just having some music uh, around the house. So I have one in the kitchen and I have one in my office upstairs. And even though the audio is not as good as the the full-size HomePod, for my needs, it is perfectly more than adequate. I guess that's not a real ringing endorsement, but it sounds good. (laughs) It fills the room and it gives me that ability to play music in multiple rooms through the house, which has been really nice. So they're... A hundred bucks each. They seem to be really well made. I'm very happy with them. Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, I too have a new Apple product. It's the new MacBook Air, the M1 MacBook Air. So this is the one with Apple's new chips. Um, Before we started recording this episode, we were talking with Quinton for about a half an hour about the Macs and (laughs) iPhones and all that because he's an Apple user as well. Um, I bought the absolute cheapest MacBook Air. $999, $999, 8 gigs of RAM, thinking if these are as fast as Apple says, then I don't need to spend more for extra RAM. I don't need to buy the MacBook Pro because it's the same processor. Uh, my needs for a laptop are limited. It's my second computer for testing, for doing you know screenshots and screencasts, and it's my emergency computer if my iMac dies. Um, I'm incredibly impressed. This is fast. The battery life is extraordinary. Uh, it's for the first time I've bought the cheapest Mac and it's better than any previous Mac that I've had. Obviously it's a similar laptop. I mean, my main computer is an iMac and I'm waiting for them to update the iMac with their own chip. Mm -hmm. But if you're considering getting a new Mac, I would think twice about spending the extra $200 or 200 pounds for that additional Ram. Uh, You'll need it if you're going to be opening big files like videos, but otherwise I mean, just for one example, I opened 78 tabs in Safari and I was able to work very smoothly. I opened two dozen apps at the same time and it had no problem. And this is something that, you know, previous Macs didn't do. So 
If you need the features in the MacBook Pro, like the touch bar, and maybe you want extra RAM and extra storage, go for it. But if you just want the cheapest Mac out there and something that, to me, this is going to last many years. It's so fast and the battery life is so good. 999 bucks can't go wrong. And it's so loud, I hear, because it's of that massive fan that's inside, right? There's no fan in the MacBook Air, yeah. So I know people particularly, we're talking on Skype now. Um, on my iMac, my fan's not running. I don't know, is your Mac's fan running not now? Not currently, but it... okay. Often does. <laughs> Often video conferencing makes the fan go crazy. Um, and these new processors are very low power, so they don't heat a lot. And the MacBook Air doesn't even have a fan. It'll slow down if it gets too hot. Um, but other than that, it's it's incredibly quiet. So um, very pleased with this new MacBook Air. Wonderful. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.